bringing relevant and engaging insights to human resource and talent development professionals. This is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Here is your host, Diana Thomas. Welcome to another episode of Talent Champions. I'm Diana Thomas, and I'm honored to serve as your host. Today, I am super excited to have one of the global leaders that positively impacted my life and career, Jack Groppel. Jack is the professor of exercise and sports science, professor of business at Judson University. He's the co-founder of the Human Performance Institute at Johnson & Johnson. He has a PhD in exercise physiology, and he's the author of The Corporate Athlete, How to Achieve Maximal Performance in Business and Life. Today's topic is around leaders lead thyself. Being the best leader starts with you, using self-care and self-love to perform better on the job. We'll also talk about how to model behaviors that make you an inspiring leader. Welcome, Jack. Diane, it's so great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited that you are here today. But before we get deeper into today's topic, maybe you could share just a little bit about your background and what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, I'll try to make this short because my my life and career have been very circuitous. That's the word that I use. You know, I grew up in Southern Illinois. Everybody in my family, except for my immediate family, were farmers. Um, But for whatever reason, um, I started playing tennis when I was 13 years old. And I fell in love with tennis. Um, And I actually walked on to play tennis at the University of Illinois. I made the team and I played there and then I got my master's there. And then I went to Florida State for my PhD. When I finished my coursework for my PhD, the tennis coaching job at Illinois opened up. And I was uh, one of the younger tennis coaches in the country at the time at 25. Uh, Went back to Illinois as as the men's tennis coach and also a professor. And I was really doing research in sport. Uh, coaching. I started working with the U.S. Tennis Association, the United States Olympic Committee. Uh, I was a research associate there. I received tenure at Illinois, um, and then I left. I gave up tenure. I went to Saddlebrook Resort, and then in 1992, Jim Lair and I, who had known each other for a little over 12 years, started our business at Saddlebrook. In 1995, we based the institute on the idea that high performers in sport and applying it to business, to medicine, law enforcement, the the military, and so on. Um, And then in 2008, we were acquired by Johnson & Johnson as part of their uh, health and wellness portfolio. Uh, In 2019, I retired, but I don't stay retired very long. So now I find myself as a professor at Judson University, which you mentioned in the intro. So that's kind of the short tour of how I got to where I am. Yeah, such an impressive background. Well, we met in the context of the work that you were doing around your book, The Corporate Athlete. And I I tell you, it's probably one of the most impactful books that has made an impact on me as an individual, as a leader, and now as an executive coach. And it's interesting because in preparation for the interview, I reread it this weekend, and wow, it is still so very relevant. Thank you. Maybe you could give us just a a little bit of an overview, because if our listeners have not heard of this book or what you've done in the past, I would want them to at least Google it and and read the high-level overview of the book, and then I know they're probably going to want to buy it. 
Sure, thank you. Well, the premise of the book was that there's a great athlete in all of us, not necessarily, and this is where everybody has to really take a deep breath because everyone, there's a lot of people that might be saying, well, I'm not an athlete. It's not about physical performance in an athletic arena. It's about the idea of what an athlete is. An athlete is a great performer in, could be mental performance, could be emotional performance, could be spiritual performance, but there's a great athlete, a great performer in all of us. It might be being the best mom you could possibly be, or the best dad you could possibly be, the best friend you could possibly be, but there's a great athlete. And in in that requires great self-care, you know, mental toughness. We talk about a lot, spiritual fitness. We talk about a lot in the book. But that was the premise behind the book. Yeah. And the book, I can't believe it when I was looking at it, it was written in like 2000, right? Right, right. Yeah. So it's been a while. And as I went back, it's interesting because I love books that start with like a self-assessment because that is such a great way to hook, you know, a reader. It hooks me and I look at where I scored. And when I read this, I had come into McDonald's Corporation to run Hamburger University, their global training center, and to align the other universities around the world. And I had already gone through some personal transformations. I had found Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I'd become a a huge supporter of that and facilitating classes for our regional uh, level employees and leaders. And so I, I felt like I had a foundation. But when I came in and I met you, you really inspired me. And then we inspired the team and inspired the whole U.S. organization as well as global alignment to personally look at what you can do to be the best you, starting with your health, like you said, physical health, this nutrition, mentally, spiritually. And it was pretty risky back then. I remember (laughs) going to my leaders and saying, I want to bring this guy in and train our 14,000 restaurant managers that we had every other year come into a, a central location. And in that year, it was going to be in Vegas, where we'd bring them yes. in at Waves and have That's you right. talk to them about you know being the best that they can be physically, mentally, spiritually, so that they can lead at a higher level. And I remember being just so blessed that our leaders at the time were open-minded and said, yes, we can do this. And it was probably one of the most inspirational and impactful conventions, you know, because we always do training as part of it, that I heard back from managers for for years about how that interaction changed their life. I don't know if you remember it, but it was one of the coolest experiences. Oh, I remember it very well. We did it over a period of almost two weeks in Las Vegas with the different regions coming in one at a time. And it's such an enjoyable program to do. But, you know, what's fascinating is that you were a very forward thinking leader at the time, because when Jim Lair and I really started this, as when Stephen Covey started it just a few years before, um, with the seven habits, when we would go into the C-suite and talk about purpose, I mean, you were quickly ushered to the door or ushered to HR because it was considered very soft training. Well, today, the idea of understanding one's purpose has become very mainstream in the business world. And so, and I tip my hat to you for uh, being forward thinking in that regard. No, it was such a great, great experience. And, you know, you go through training throughout your life, especially people like us that, you know, want to continue to learn. But there's things that just impact you 
that you know when you're going through is going to make a difference. And and to me, that's what your right. training does and the way that you do it and you get people motivated. And it's not like you have to do all this stuff. You, you've always been great at, let's just set some goals and start with small things. Like I remember on our team of fabulous leaders, you know, that worked for me at Hamburg University, it was just like, okay, let's get everybody water bottles. We're going to drink more water than the free soda that we're given, you know, and we're going to yeah, take exactly. these, we're going to take these productivity recovery breaks and walk around around this beautiful campus and we started small and and then we built on it and then I don't know if you knew this but we actually had 25 of us that completed the Chicago Marathon and I was one of them and I had I never didn't... been a runner before how great is that I did not know that That's yeah great. yeah we were inspired by um, Jan Fields who was the president of McDonald's US she had moved into um, taking care of herself even more and started running and encouraging others to do it. And so a friend of mine, another officer, you know, got me to sign up and I'm like, I'm really a walk runner. I'm not really a full runner. And then we encouraged other people to train on the team. And I mean, to me, that's what can happen when you pull people together around a common goal. People that never were runners can complete the marathon and enjoy it and, and have that impact them. So yeah, simply fantastic. Yeah. Well, you have been a role model in living this, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, I respect you so much. And I remember you sharing an incredible story about a climbing adventure that you took with your son. <laughs> so again, evidence that you live what you teach. Can you share with us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating because my son's adopted from China. Uh, he was adopted at about three and a half years old in 2008, the very same year we sold the business to Johnson & Johnson. And uh, and then two years later, I had serious arthritis in my knees because of all the tennis and the surgeries that I'd had earlier in my life. Uh, so in 2010, I had both my knees replaced. And as we got into the, you know, to the teens, the 2000 teens, I started just thinking about a, th a thing that my dad and I did when I was 20 years old. My dad and I had a really tough relationship growing up, but he wanted to go to Alaska. Um, and we lived outside of St. Louis in Southern Illinois. I said, so, okay, how are we gonna go? And he goes, we're gonna drive and we're gonna camp. Now remember, we had a really difficult relationship. And in my brain, I'm going, we're gonna kill each other. <laughs> um, and he, we actually did it. We were gone for, I think, six or seven weeks camping every night. I was the cook. He was the dishwasher. Uh, I was an Eagle Scout earlier in my life. So I love to cook and I love the outdoors and I, I just loved it. And, you know, I thought it was pretty powerful and we did get closer. But when my dad passed away at his funeral, the pastor who was talking about my father said that all dad ever talked about was the Alaska trip. And here I got this young son and I'm an older father, obviously. And I said, I need to do an adventure with my son. So I really started looking at what can we do? And I'm either, I'm, I'm the kind of go big or go home guy. I'm not going to drive somewhere. Um, so I have always had an affinity for Africa. I've been to South Africa before and I, I started doing research and I found Kilimanjaro and it was the highest freestanding mountain in the world, the highest mountain in the world that you can climb without technical equipment. And I said, why not? So um, I took my son to Rocky Mountain National Park the year before just to see how he would handle altitude. And he did great. And we went to the top of Pikes Peak and I said, well, how would you like to go higher? And he goes, well, how much higher? And I go about another mile vertically. <laughs> and he goes, 
in the U.S.? I said, no, it's in Africa. And he goes, sure, why not? So we started training everything you talked about with the corporate athlete. We talked mentally about how difficult it's going to be and and how we mentally prepare for it could be freezing. It could be raining um, the emotional that there's going to be a lot of fear. I didn't. And I, by the way, I didn't know how much fear I was going to have, but I, there was a lot of fear you know, the idea of altitude sickness and when you're really sick versus suck it up buttercup time, um, physically getting aerobically fit enough to, to accommodate. And we had no idea. That's the one thing about extreme altitude that you don't know how your body's ever going to respond. Um, and so our whole thing was we were going to make it together or we were going to not make it together. We were going to do it together. And I think there's lessons for all of us in this because we all face mountains in our life. And we were on the mountain for eight days. And on the sixth night, you know, we had this very sobering briefing and we're at 15,300 feet and we're going to go to 19,341 that night. And they did this sobering briefing and we got back to the tent. And this shows you the kind of the, the, the attitude of my son. I said, I was concerned for him. And I said, how are you feeling? He goes, I think you're a little crazy for bringing all of us here. <laughs> um, and we made it. We made it to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro together. Uh, I was the oldest on the mountain and he was the youngest. He was 12 years old when he made it to the summit. Um, and one of my um, true incredible journeys of my life was getting to the summit of Kilimanjaro with my son. Wow, that's so impressive. And and that special memory that you'll have and that he will always have, you know, yes. you know years from now, he's going to be on a podcast talking about this fabulous experience he shared with his awesome dad. I can I could just see it. That's great. Well, well, this last year definitely has been challenging, and we try to we try to stay in touch with our audience, our listeners. And one of the things that has been on their mind is stress and anxiety. And actually, one of our earlier episodes where I interviewed Peggy Selfon uh-huh. around yeah. anxi- anxiety and stress continues to be one of our highest episodes. So, because so many of us are concerned about stress. Um, one of the things I still hear is that we tend to lack practical ways to manage it. So what are some of the psychological effects of yeah. long-term stress and any advice that you might have? Oh, I'd love to talk about this. One of my favorite topics, because coming from the performance arena, um, you know, working with world-class athletes and then military um, leaders, law enforcement, CEOs from around the world, people that are in high-stress arenas, what you have to understand, and, and everybody stay with me for a second, because right away, this is going to sound, whoa, but stress by itself, stress alone is not a bad thing. In fact, if you take all the stress out of your life, you would die. We are biological organisms. We must have some stress to thrive. So stress actually has been given such a bad name, but it's not the stress. Yes, long-term stress is wrong. So again, stay with me. You know, there's acute stress and there's chronic stress. The acute stress might be you fall down, um, walking down a hill and you break a leg. That's acute stress. That's a it's an immediate sharp amount of stress. There's fear. There's anxiety. That's acute. But chronic stress is the long term day after day, constant, not non letting up of pressure. And it's how we perceive that. You know, Billie Jean King has a great line I love pressure is a privilege well you have to mentally get in that state because to a lot of us pressure is not a privilege you know you have to train to get there you have to welcome the stress now here's where here's the tip 
any kind of stress, no matter how small it is, if unabated by recovery, in other words, if there's no recovery whatsoever, if it's just constant, it will take you out. You won't, you won't make it. This is why people understand why am I getting so irritable? Why am I, why am I not sleeping well? Why am I, why am I doing these? Because you've got this chronic stress with no recovery. The word recovery has been around since the early 1900s with the Harvard step test. You know, they measured how fit you were by how quickly you recovered. And that is a big deal. If you recover quickly, that's, that's an indicator of resilience. Also, the idea that building in small time periods, I love to ask people you know, who think that their days just never end. I ask them, how many two minute to three minute intervals do you think you have in a day when you don't absolutely have to be on? And the answer is a lot. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you really, it's really not a linear life. You choose to keep going. So if you can start understanding that and, and understand where there's a two minute interval and a three minute interval to call home and connect with love. I mean, don't say, hey, check it in. Call, c- connect with love with a friend. Connect, get, go up and go for a walk. Get away from the screen. Anything like this that can abate the, re- the stressor can give you a small sense of recovery. And if you do this physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, you'd be amazed at how you will not only relieve the feeling of the chronic stress, but you'll also increase your capacity. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the most impactful things that I took away when I first met you and I went through the corporate athlete program was the recovery time and mm-hmm. ta- rebounding and doing things to recharge because right. we tend to be just on, on, on. And you can't change some of that, but you can change no, you how you're reacting to it by taking some time away. So we used to talk about what do you need to do to, you know, rejuvenate yourself. And we used to have like, you know, th- signs that, you know, right now I'm in self-care. You can't talk to me for the next 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Or if you saw people put on their tennis shoes and walk around the building, it wasn't time for you to go out and catch them and do a meeting. It's no, they were recovering. And and I think that's a critical concept. We talked about it in Peggy's podcast around taking productivity pauses. And I really, really think that that's something that everybody should be doing when you start to feel these effects. Or, you know, and I teach yoga now and just breathing, the impact of just stopping and breathing, you know, can have on you, which as an executive, when I first heard that, I was like, these people are crazy. You know, what do they think? (laughs) You know, we're... That's That's exactly right. So maybe continuing along those lines is what does self-care look for look like for leaders today, you know, in today's environment? Well, you know, I want to start by picking back on something you just said, because you said that you were taking yoga and you realize and taking a breath that you, you use the word stopping and taking a breath. Number one strategy is stop, intentionally stop and take that deep breath. See, a lot of people, they take the deep breath, but they're still they're still going. In other words, you paused, you had, a, you had an interruption of thought by the word stopping, and then you take the deep breath, and you could take two or three deep diaphragmatic breaths. That's a tremendous form. The idea of interrupting what's happening is number one. Number two, always ask yourself the question, what matters most right now? What matters most right now? For example, if I've just walked in the door at home, is what matters most that I connect, I looked at my phone to see if I got a text message or is it connecting with someone who's in the home? 
whether it's a friend, a spouse, a child, whomever it might be. Um, what matters most right now will help you a lot. The next is setting boundaries. What kind of boundaries do you need to set to protect your time and, and yourself? I have executives that they have a boundary. They'll leave their phone in the car when they first get home so they can have maybe 30 minutes with zero interruptions when they walk in the door. That's setting a boundary. And that means you've got a boundary that now I'm going to connect with what matters most and I'm not going to have my phone even accessible. It, so that's another one. The next point is be intentional. You know, when you leave that phone in the car, you're intentionally saying what's in, who's in the house matters more to me than my phone. So you're being intentional. And, and I think then you just start making the right choices about what you do. That, that would be my recommendations. I love that. And we'll make sure as part of the notes that go out uh, after this podcast, have these in there. And and I would say, you know, this whole thing about, you know, what matters most in connecting with the people is such a huge thing. And that's where I hear yes. back from the executives I'm coaching that they want better relationships with their family. And it's so important how you show up. And I know I was guilty of that is I'd get home and I the first thing I do is let me check all my messages and get everything right. done so I can spend time with you. But while they're watching right. me, they don't feel like the most important person. So I actually got to the point where I'd stop at the park before I got home if I needed yeah. to do something so it wasn't visible, you know, to them. Yeah. When I walked in, I was all about them. I love I love that advice. Yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. And the other things is, you know, this whole thing about connecting with the people that you work with, too, at a deeper level. I would say those things are really important, too, is because I've seen, you know, people come up to an executive and that executive is so busy, that person doesn't feel like they're the most important person. So I think some of this advice about, you know, connecting with those when you're at home or who matters most, if you want to be the role model leader and be influential is, you know, showcase that at work as well. So I think that's, or through yeah, Zoom, you know, through Zoom, it's a little more challenging, but you can do it. President uh, Theodore Roosevelt had the greatest quote, and I use it all the time. And he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if you're on the phone before you're connecting with a colleague or a friend or a partner, whomever it might be, uh, you're, you're not saying they matter most. You're saying this matters most. So I think that's a powerful thing for people to remember. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, that's such a relevant quote. So important. So let, let's um, continue this conversation about good self-care because I think it's so critical. You know, what are some other common ways that people you coach practice this good self-care? You know, it comes down to the time that we have. I like to coach people to look at your day as a 24-hour day. When we do time management and when you look at time management charts, it's like from eight in the morning until seven at night and then it stops. Well, there's an awful lot of time around that. So I actually, because sleep is one of the most important recovery mechanisms that exist. Time with others is, is important. You know, here's what, here's what I find that the more structure you have, the greater the sense of, of freedom you will have. See this, and this flies in the face of logic. But because we, as we all grow up, we all want independence and we, want, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. But the problem is that human beings are creatures of habit. We know, for example, if you, if you go to bed within 30 minutes of a regular time and get up within 30 minutes of a regular time, you stay in a really good sleep cycle. You're getting great recovery with sleep. Um, 
So if you can build that in now, obviously that with those of us that travel a lot and it's, it's hard, but it's a tendency that you want to have. I know I used to be when I was traveling a lot and I'd go to the West coast and I'd just go out for a one day meeting or event. I lived here in Chicago. I would try to stay on central time. So I would go to bed really early and then get up really early and order room service. And so I could be on and then come back home and not have changed time zones in my, my biological time clock. So that's one thing I used to do when I traveled a lot was try to stay as close to a biological time clock. But um, I think looking at a day and then creating structure, because we are creatures of habit and the more structure you have, the more, the greater the sense of freedom you will have. Oh, I think those are great tips. Any other, you know, tips to sleep better? Because I think that's probably one of the top complaints I hear from key leaders is they feel like they could do more and be more productive if they were sleeping better. So any other advice other than I love that 30 minutes, you know, try to go to bed and get up within the same 30 minutes in that time zone. Wow, that's, that's a great tip I'm going to think about too. Yeah, it really worked well. Like I would, I would have a meeting and I would always be asked by the people I was going to meet with to have dinner. And I'd say, no, but I'd love to have breakfast mm-hmm. because I'll be up before the birds are. <laughs> it was kind of funny. It was, they, were, they were all sort of taken aback. But then when they got to know me, they loved they, they I would start getting asked out for breakfast instead of dinners. Ah, uh, see, that's... And it, a- was, it was fascinating. It worked really well. I think other tips, I think, you know, you got to be careful of what our world does. Your bombarded screen time really affects our sleep. I would put the screen lighting on on the filter, you know, so that it's not that bright luminescence. I would not even be looking at screens probably within an hour of going to bed. I would try to watch what my, my food intake, caffeine intake. For example, I love coffee, but I try not to drink coffee after probably noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. I would drink coffee all day long, but I know that it likely, even though I don't think it really affects my sleep, my this is my perception. I know physiologically it does because it's a drug. Caffeine is a drug. That's just my personal tip. I avoid caffeine later in the day and I try not to eat before like two hours before going to bed so that I literally get my physiology and my psychology into a rhythm. I think that's the key. Mm, Great advice. And it goes back to our topic of leaders lead thyself. And when you say, hey, I can't meet you for dinner, but I could do you for breakfast, you're putting your needs first. And and I think leaders have to be a little selfish sometimes when it comes to self-care. You do, you really do. It's not selfish, it's actually self-love. That's that's how you have to think about it. Self-love. Yep. Okay, well, talking about love, since you went there, is I did read this fascinating, fascinating article in <laughs> Forbes. And at first, right. when I saw the title, Leading with Love, and I saw you, and I'm like, where is he going with this now? Can maybe you expand <laughs> a little bit more about, you know, love and how it's related to this self-care? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. You know, I've been teaching at Judson for about a year and a half now, and we teach a course called Business for the Common Good. Um, and when you start looking at the history of how business got started, it was all about agape love. You know, one neighbor had a skill that another neighbor didn't. Another neighbor had a need. Um, neighbors were working together. They did trade. There wasn't 
coin or or any kind of dollars exchanging in back in the ancient times. So it was all trade, and it was through the idea of agape that I can provide this for you. Um, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you has been around for millennia. In ancient Zulu, there's a concept called Ubuntu, which means I am, it's a humanity is because humanity is, I am because you are. So this idea of agape love um, has, has really resonated with me that we're really missing this a lot in our world. And it's much deeper than purpose. I believe, I really do believe that agape love right now is where purpose was 25, 30 years ago. And I think, I think we're going to see agape love coming back into our world in a lot more because our culture with just the go, 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 constant, never let up, um, you know, it's, it's really got me a little bit distressed that the, the, the way we live our lifestyle right now. So the idea of loving yourself and making that decision to love yourself before you can really love others is a pretty important concept, I think. And I think this really fits into being more inspiring and more effective as a leader. So more people want to follow you. Can you expand on that a little bit more based on, you know, who we're leading in today's world? Yeah, again, it comes back to the idea of what President Theodore Roosevelt said. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, Diana, it's fascinating. Those of us that were in the workforce before 1995, um, if you think about it, the moment you left work, it was really hard to find you. It was impossible. You had to have a message left on, maybe you had a cell phone, but a message was often left on a machine and leaders had to have contingency plans because they didn't know they would get a hold of you. Now we're available 24 seven, three, six, five. I ask this question seriously. Since 1995, we went from having natural boundaries in our lifestyle. And if you look at 200 years ago before the lights, I mean, when it turned dark, you had to stop working. You couldn't keep farming. You had to stop. There've been natural boundaries in our life to protect us so that we could have more intimacy. We could have more connection with people. We would have dinner together every night. Then we get to this 24 seven, three, six, five lifestyle that definitely made us more productive. No argument against that whatsoever, but who taught us? how to have boundaries, who taught us how to be intentional, who taught us how to make the right choices? The answer to that is no one. We've been left to our own. So suddenly we think by loving other people and constantly giving, 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 that we are doing the right thing and we're losing self-love. We've stepped away from self-care. We, we've stepped away from taking care of ourselves. And so the idea of a leader being a role model, you have to demonstrate self-love and what this means as a leader so that your team can thrive. Yeah, so that was just so nicely said. And, and this whole concept, we talked about it a couple times in other podcasts of being a resonant leader, a leader that resonates with people that, you know, inspires them, you know, to want to follow. And I think that that's something that leaders that don't learn that are going to get left behind. Because as you said, the world has shifted and changed. And the younger group of leaders coming up, they don't want that for themselves. And they're not inspired by a leader that is so consumed and, you know, just 24-7 about the company. And I get excited about seeing the shift already. 
but I think it's going to come even more as, you know, this younger generation, they're not going to have the loyalty to stay with companies forever. You know, they're going to move somewhere else so that they can still have a life and a career. So I, I think this is a hot topic now. And I see the most successful leaders that I get to interact with are the ones that are already figuring it out and putting in place things to show that they love themselves and they're setting boundaries and that's a role model for others because if you don't I don't know how long you could last because the world will chew you up like you said about stress will just yeah it'll, you know it'll chew you up yeah create all this wow this is this is so um inspiring and so impactful I know for so many people and I'm trying to think of all the questions that my talent champions listeners would have. And I know one thing that I'll hear is where else can we go, you know, to, to learn more and to get deeper into these topics? What suggestions do you have? Well, I think if you're new to the topic and really want to get a start, I would start with Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I really would. The Seven Habits is, is literally um, the book. Um, if you're not and you want something that's relatively new, I'll refer you to my two colleagues, Jim Lair and Karen Kenny, just came out with a book just a couple of months ago called Leading with Character. And it is a phenomenal read about how do you have the highest moral and performance character as a leader. Um, and it is a tough love kind of a book, but it is, it, it is the book for the future. Mm, I love that, especially, you know, as we said, we were talking about COVID, we talk about how the world has shifted right. with, you know, uh, equality needing to be even more important um, and demonstrated, you know, throughout. Um, I love that. I will definitely be checking that out. And uh, as we started, we were talking a little bit about Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I still think about it, use it every day. There's so much stuff like your book that's just timeless. Uh, in that approach and, and being the best you you can be so that others, you know, can thrive around you and you can lead at a higher level. Let's talk a little bit more about you. And okay. is there one person from your past that you would say has had the greatest influence or impact on you in your career? And maybe you wouldn't be where you are today without that person's influence. Oh, yeah, I can, that, that I can tell you immediately. The person's name is Chuck Dillman, Dr. Charles Dillman. When I went to Illinois to play tennis, I went to play tennis. I, didn't, I wanted to play tennis in the Big Ten. My father, I told you we had a difficult relationship. He told me that if I went to Illinois, I had to get a degree in something that really mattered. Remember, most of my family were farmers. So he said, if you're going to go to Illinois and I'm paying for it, um, you got to get a degree in either agriculture and engineering. So sure enough, I got my undergraduate degree in agriculture in wildlife biology. I actually started grad school, Diana, you don't know this. I started graduate school in population genetics and I just wasn't happy. I, I was kind of lost here. I am 22 years old. I'm an absolute lost soul. And my sister, bless her heart to this day, said, why don't you go talk to the people in kinesiology? And I said, well, dad will kill me. And she goes, well, you're 22, Let just go talk. So I did. And Dr. Rollin Wright, the head of the department, admitted me to the Master's of Science program. I fell in love with it, and I got straight A's the first semester, and I will never forget what I'm going to tell you right now. Dr. Charles Dillman, who became my advisor, uh, pulled me aside. I had gotten an A in kinesiology. He was my kines teacher, and he said, if you really apply yourself, 
and study tennis the way I think you can, you could be a pioneer in the science of teaching and coaching tennis. And that was all it took. I was off to the races. And I will never, ever forget those words. I'll forever be indebted to him because I would not be where I am today had I not gone down that route and started. Then I started working with world-class tennis players. Then I got involved with the Olympics. I got to study 26 different sports. I worked with the Chicago White Sox, worked with the New Jersey Devils. I mean, and then and then we created HPI, sold it to Johnson & Johnson. It, you could all go back to those 17 words from Chuck Dillman. Wow, that's such an impressive story. And you think about, you know, where your path has gone and the impact that you've made in people's lives. And, you know, you never know whose path you're going to cross or what you will say or what you will hear that will change your path or align you and, and help you find your purpose and live it. Well, what other advice or final advice do you have for our talent champions? First of all, I'm a, I'm a big believer in dreams. Dream, dream, dream big. Set goals. And also use optimistic realism. But if there's naysayers, you know, I'm going to get a little sarcastic right now because I know that there's still people out there that are going, nah, I don't know, this agape love, this is a little too soft. Very same thing we heard 30 years ago about purpose. You know, I, I, I'm going to say this and it's sarcastic and it's and I own it. I've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul. So you might be making millions and millions of dollars, but what matters is what matters most in your life. It's not being more successful in business. If you want to be a great leader, change lives, but you've got to use opt realistic optimism. Be, re be optimistic, dream, but use realism. Teach your people, coach your people that way. You know, when we were on Kilimanjaro, the porters found out I had metal knees. They started betting against me, Diana. And the guides came up and said, we're betting for you. The porters are betting against you. That's all it. That's all I needed. Tell me somebody's betting against me. And that's what I would challenge everybody. The world is betting against you. The world wants you to just go, 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 go. Don't let them win. Don't let that win. And it goes back to like, you you know, we we're talking about purpose too, is I think sometimes we're living on automatic pilot and to stop and to think about where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Dream big. And then, you know, live intentionally, set the right boundaries, be realist. I like that realistic optimism. So. And you know, what's interesting about this thing with the porters betting against me, remember, this wasn't me being selfish that I was going to make it to the top. I was with my 12 year old son. This was us going to make it to the top. This was he and I going to make it to the top, not betting against Jack Gropple. They were betting against everything that I had planned, every, every dream that I'd had. No. Wow. Well, how can our listeners get in touch with you or continue to learn from you, Jack? Well, I'm, I'm still doing consulting work, so I, I would appreciate that. But I think the best way is LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I do my, any interviews I've ever done. When your podcast is up, I'll share it on LinkedIn. Um, so I think connect with me on LinkedIn. I would welcome anyone to connect with me and, be, and stay in touch. 
Wow. Well, this has been such a treat and such an honor to have one of my role models share with my audience and, you know, this whole topic of putting yourself first and self-love. And you said it when we were doing this prep, you know, leaders lead thyself is got to be a critical thing to, you know, remember, you know, we've talked about servant leadership and being there for others, but it's hard to be there for others unless you are there for yourself, right? Yeah, the, the servant leader has self-care. Self-care is the great servant leader. And then lead. Then lead. Yeah. Well, thank you for your generosity. As always, it's a pleasure yeah. interacting with you. And you are just so generous to share your advice, your resources. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you and see what other mountains are in your future. <laughs> and, and to keep an eye on your son, too. Thank you. Yes, please do. And by the way, you know, two years after we climbed Kilimanjaro, my son won the national 14 and under national kumite in team karate uh, for the AAU. So it's like climbing Kilimanjaro set him up to climb another mountain. So we're all facing mountains. So my best advice for everyone and Diana, it's been such a privilege to be with you. Keep climbing your mountains. They're always going to be mountains. You can climb every one of them. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a summary of today's episode. Jack's book, The Corporate Athlete, was absolutely transformative to me in my career. There's a lot to unpack, but the core message is that you can take the principles that help elite athletes to excel and apply them to whatever you want to accomplish in your own life. The book's advice is timeless, and I highly recommend reading it. Tackling big challenges in life, whether that's climbing a mountain or overcoming anything you're struggling through, will equip you to take on bigger challenges in the future. If you'd like to hear more about Jack's journey up Mount Kilimanjaro with his son, visit our website to find video of a talk he did sharing more details about that trip. Stress is something we all need in life. It's chronic stress with no relief that will eventually break you. Your ability to recover is your resilience, and it's up to you to find even small ways throughout every day to give yourself a break from the barrage of stress. Good self-care is often a function of time and priority management. By creating a structure that prioritizes the people and the things that matter most, you free yourself from chronic stress because you're giving yourself that space for recovery. Just as purpose was a foreign concept in business 20 plus years ago, Jack predicts that self-love and agape love will be the next big focus for leaders. Self-love can be hard to do in our go-go-go culture, but making the decision to love yourself before you pour into others enables you to do so much more. This will require setting boundaries and prioritizing self-care. In doing so, you can model important behaviors for those that you lead and end up creating an environment where people can thrive. Join us next month when we will continue relevant and engaging conversations. And don't miss an episode. Sign up on our website, talent-champions.com, to receive an email notification when new episodes are released, as well as to receive bonus material. Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. Be sure to check out the full Franklin Covey Podcast Network by searching Franklin Covey on your favorite podcast provider.